Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A couple of years back, I was invited to 606 Studios, which is the headquarters of all things Foo. It's the house of Foo. This is where the Foo Fighters rehearse and record. It's where they have band meetings. It's where they store a lot of their stuff. I had all five guys to myself for an interview, and there was no other way to describe them as a bunch of brothers. Here's part of that conversation. Taylor Hawkins took the lead on this. I've seen you guys, I don't know how many times, and there has never been a time where I've looked at you and thought to myself, there are five guys on stage having more fun (laughs) than anybody should ever be allowed to have. I mean, the joy that comes off the stage from you guys at every single gig about, isn't this great? Isn't this awesome what we get to do for a living? It's unbelievable. Well, it why really shouldn't is. it be? Well, <laughs> it's a pretty good way I mean, to make a living. Know, f- we get paid tons of money to go play rock and roll. Is <laughs> 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 that a bummer? <laughs> no, it's Just not. Just break it down, Hawkins. <laughs> Hawkins broke it down. <laughs> That's the simplest, simplest terms. I mean, there's all sorts of little Shit, things happening all the time, but basically you come down to it. Yeah, we're, we're really lucky. The whole time Taylor was talking, Dave Grohl was sitting there with a big smile on his face. He knows he's among the luckiest humans alive. Okay, sure, he's talented and ambitious, but so many things completely beyond his control had to go absolutely right for things to turn out the way they have. It's really amazing. Dave's career has been extremely well-documented, but there still might be a number of things that you don't know about him, especially from the early, 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 early years. So, let's dig into that, shall we? This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and I call this program an ultra-deep background dossier on Dave Grohl, which is, uh, I guess, fairly self-explanatory, right? We're going to go through his life and pull out some things at random, more or less, and hopefully fill in some tiny gaps in a career that has been very well documented already. And maybe we'll get more insight into what makes Dave, Dave. Let's begin with this. Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters, live in Los Angeles on October 22nd, 2002. That's taken from both a Japanese EP and a two-part CD single type thing released in the UK. Now, like I said a few minutes ago, we're going to spend the show looking at things in Dave's background that might have escaped your attention so far. And we might as well start somewhere near the beginning. This is item number one in this dossier. Dave isn't the only famous Grohl, or at least the only Grohl to spend a lot of time in the public eye. There was Dave's dad, which I find fascinating. Jim Grohl was a journalist working in Warren, Ohio, which forms the eastern point of a triangle that includes Akron and Cleveland. On May 4th, 1970, 
Jim was assigned to cover the anti-Vietnam War student protests at Kent State University, about 30 miles away. Mr. Grohl was there when four students were killed by the National Guard. His reporting was so good that it got him on the fast track to a bigger gig in Washington, D.C., so that's where the family moved in 1972. Actually, they moved to Springfield, Virginia, a small house on a cul-de-sac called Kathleen Place. Mum, Virginia Grohl, got a job as an English and drama teacher at Thomas Jefferson High School. We'll get back to her later. Dad eventually switched jobs and became a speechwriter and campaign manager for a series of Republican politicians, including a senator named Robert Taft Jr., the grandson of a former U.S. president, as well as running for the Republican National Convention. Jim Grohl was not around for long, though. The marriage to Virginia fell apart when Dave was about seven. This was 1976. Therefore, it's safe to say that Dad's lifelong political conservatism didn't really have a chance to rub off on Dave, who eventually adopted a more progressive approach. When Taft Jr. dropped out of politics, Jim Grohl was offered a job working for Republican Bob Dole, but he turned that down. And that was just as well because Dole got killed by Bill Clinton when he ran for president in 1996, and that pretty much ended his career as a political consultant. Dave saw his father on a regular basis until he died of cancer at the age of 75 on August 6, 2014. And it should be noted that there was a bedroom at Jim's house with a drum set, waiting for Dave every time he visited. Again, Jim was a hardcore conservative Reaganite. Meanwhile, Dave grew up as a fan of hardcore punk, a genre that was created in response to Ronald Reagan. Interesting how that worked out, isn't it? Just to give you an example, when Dave was 14, this would be about 1983, he sent a fan letter to Ian Mackay of DC Hardcore Heroes Fugazi. It read, Good Thrash! So, I was wondering... If you could give me some numbers or people to get in touch with, it would help. Thanks, Dave Grohl. If you don't know Fugazi, here's a sample from a little later in the career. This is what a young Dave Grohl lived for. It's from 1988 and is called Waiting Room. Fugazi, a major, major influence on the musical universe of a teenage Dave Grohl. However, Fugazi wasn't Dave's first exposure to punk rock, or music for that example. Well, actually, I sort of went in reverse. So I, I, I started listening to, I think the first music that I really started listening to was, well, the first album that I got was this K-Tel like hits of the 70s record and we didn't have a record player um in our house my mom was a school teacher so she'd bring home the fairfax county you know standard school issue piece of record players you know and we went out and bought this record one day and i remember the one song that i just worshipped for years was Frankenstein by the Edgar Winter Group. I just thought that was oh, it's amazing. And that kind of turned me on to guitar rock. Like big guitar rock. I just thought, oh, this is the greatest. And then, then we went out and got some Beatles records. And then after that, like my cousin gave me a Rush record. And then after that, it just sort of started moving into like Devo. And seeing the B-52s on Saturday Night Live for the first time, just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And then Devo and, and Kiss. Kiss 
actually before B-52s and Devo. And then after that, um, by that time I was probably 12 and just discovered hardcore and punk rock. And then there was just years of listening to nothing but that until I was maybe 16. Then I started listening to Led Zeppelin. And then I started <clears throat> listening to really just Led Zeppelin. <laughs> That's about it for years. So Dave and his older sister Lisa are living with mom. But then mom finds a new boyfriend who moves in with everybody. This is dossier item number two, the pseudo stepdad. His name was Chip Donaldson. Like mom, he was an English teacher. He was also a Vietnam vet. And when he moved in, he brought in his record collection. It featured a lot of stuff from the late 60s and early 70s. Stones, Dylan, Grateful Dead, that kind of thing. Dave became fascinated by the solo in Leonard Skinner's Freebird. Chip would say things like, if you practice, you could do that. And it was through Chip that Dave was first properly exposed to Led Zeppelin. Now, he'd heard Led Zeppelin playing on the AM radio station his mom liked. But when Chip came into the picture, the Zep fascination really took hold. Over the next few years, especially after a couple of neighborhood stoners gave him the first two Zeppelin albums, this became Dave's band. And it still is, really. Not only did he become a huge fan of drummer John Bonham, but today he has three Led Zeppelin tattoos, the first of which he did himself when he was 16. That was Bonham's three-circle runic symbol that we saw on Zep's fourth album. The second was done by a semi-amateur in Amsterdam, and the third he paid for with the first check he received for being in Nirvana. That check was for $400. He bought a Nintendo, a BB gun, and that tattoo. But as much as Dave loved big, loud rock like Zeppelin and Kiss and Rush and Black Sabbath, that would eventually take a left turn. And this is an important date to remember. January 26th, 1980. This was a Saturday. Big sister Lisa was babysitting, and 11-year-old Dave snuck out of the family house so he could hang with her as she watched Saturday Night Live. Terry Garr was the guest host that night, but it was the musical guest that freaked Dave out. It was the B-52s. When they performed Rock Lobster that night, Dave says, and this is a quote, I remember that moment like some people remember the Kennedy assassination. That moment changed my life. The importance and impact of that on me was huge. That people that were so strange could play this music that sounded foreign to me, and yet for it to be so moving. I had never imagined something so bizarre was possible. It made me want to be weird. Years later, on Halloween night 2002, Dave and the Foo Fighters were joined by B-52's frontman Fred Schneider at a gig in New York City. Imagine then, knowing what we know now, how cool Dave found that. She came from Here is where we come to the story of Cousin Tracy, Tracy Bradford. This is item number three in our deep background dossier. Well, now, we, my family used to go to Evanston, Illinois every summer. And we'd done so for, for I don't know, four or five years in a row. It was, they were relatives, but they, weren't, they were close friends of the family so much that we called them relatives, so this is my cousin, but we're actually, we're not really blood relatives, she's just like this family that's a friend of my family, whatever. So we'd go to their, 
to stay with them for a week every summer. And their cousin Tracy, I think, was two years older than me. And uh, she was normal one year. And then the next year, we showed up to the house, and she came down the stairs in, like, bondage pants and motorcycle boots. And she had that sort of, like, female, that weird sort of, like, crew cut on the top but then with bangs and then like the hair in the back thing she had an, an antipasti t-shirt and she was punk I was just like oh my god I was so into it because I mean the only punk I'd really ever seen was you know like on Chips and Quincy and these TV shows that were just ridiculous and uh, so all of a sudden here it was and I was so into it it was so she had this incredible record collection which it would be worth a mint today, I'm sure, because it's all, you know, the first Misfits single, the first Minor Threat single, these things that you go down to Bleaker Bob's, you see for like 400 bucks a pop. She just had these amazing singles, and I just fell in love with the network, like the fanzines, and just this network, the underground network, and how everyone was connected, and everyone, you had pen pals, and she had flyers from shows in, you know, San Diego, it just blew me away, you know. I couldn't even find a local flyer in Springfield, Virginia, where I was from, and she had stuff from, you know, Alaska. Well, the first show that, and this is the first time I'd ever seen a live band, because when I was young, I didn't go to rock concerts at all. And so, the first show I'd ever seen was, it was Naked Ray Gun and Rights of the Accused at a place called the Cubby Bear in Chicago. I guess it was 1982 or 83. I think it was 82. Probably 82. And, uh, and it wasn't violent at all. It was uh, all these people hanging out. Everyone's friends. Everybody knew each other. You know, everybody knew the band. The band knew everybody. They were just playing this show. And it was kind of sloppy and kind of screwed up, but it was awesome, man. It was great. I loved it. Quick sidebar here. 14-year-old Tracy was in her own punk rock band. It was called Verboten. She was the oldest. The guitarist was just 10. And they even did a video of the band performing in 1982. And guess what? You can find it on the internet. Here's a sample of what 13-year-old young Dave heard that night in 82 at the Cubby Bear in Chicago. This was his first ever concert, thanks to Cousin Tracy. Try to imagine him being at this gig. This is Naked Raygun with a track called Swingo. Chicago's Naked Ray Gun and an early version of a song called Swingo, exactly the kind of thing that turned Dave onto punk. When we come back, more of our deep background dossier and Dave Grohl. Hang on. So I've compiled this dossier on Dave Grohl. This is really deep background stuff, a lot deeper than most people go with this guy. And we are up to dossier item number four, Dave's first attempt at writing songs. The first thing Dave needed was something to play. 
Mum got him his first guitar for Christmas in 1981. It was a 1963 Silvertone from Sears with the amp built into the case. This was around the same time as the formation of Dave's first band. He had a school buddy named Larry Hinkle, and they named their grade five bedroom project the H.G. Hancock Band. Okay, why? Well, H for Hinkle, G for Grohl, and Hinkle because, well, that was the name of their gym teacher. It was Dave's idea. Hey, listen, Leonard Skinner's name is a derivation of Leonard Skinner, their gym teacher's name. So if it was good enough for Skinner, it was good enough for Dave and Larry. Dave played guitar while Larry cobbled together a drum set consisting of a laundry basket, some pots from the kitchen, and a couple of mums knitting needles for sticks. And now it was time to write some songs. Well, I used to do this thing at home where, this is when I was like 11 or 12, where I would, I'd actually write and track songs with my mom's home stereo and my little boom box. And so what I'd do is I'd, I'd put a tape in the boom box and record the guitar track of the song, just the guitar. And then I'd take that tape out, put it in my mom's stereo, rewind it, hit play and turn it up as I was recording with the boom box, the drum track. So then you'd have a tape with the drum track and the guitar track, put it in and, you know, just keep on piling up. And I did like four songs once. I think I was 12 years old, 11 or 12. And um, just songs about my dog and songs about my school and just ridiculous stuff. But that was just as I was getting into punk rock, too. So it was kind of like, it probably sounded more like, I don't know, DOA or or Naked Ray Gun or something like that than, than the Beatles or anything. By the way, Dave's dog's name was BG, as in the Bee Gees. Okay, maybe that's a little too deep for this dossier. Item number five is a recitation of Dave's earliest bands. The first, again, the H.G. Hancock Band, broke up when Larry's parents divorced and he moved to Maryland with his father. This led to a new venture with a kid named Nick Christie, who lived a few blocks away. And this led to Dave's mom taking the two of them out to an open mic night at a nearby restaurant called Treebeards. This is where they got to perform in front of strangers for the very first time. That band eventually became known as, and this is clever, not, they were known as Nameless. Then Nick's parents got a divorce. Okay, you're probably starting to see a pattern here. Nameless broke up when Nick moved away with his mom. Next up was Freak Baby, which Dave joined as a second guitarist in mid-1984. They didn't do much, but it was through them that Dave met someone named Barrett Jones, a member of a local band called Eleventh Hour, who had a recording studio set up in his parents' laundry room, and he called it Laundry Room Records. He recorded eight songs with Freak Baby at that house, all on November 11th, 1984. They were dubbed onto cassette, which Dave then tried to sell through a local punk-friendly record store, and absolutely nothing happened. Then Freak Baby morphed into Mission Impossible, which happened around Dave's 16th birthday in January of 1985. By this time, Dave had moved to drums, and this is where we finally get to Dave's earliest recordings that we can find. This was recorded by Barrett Jones in 1985, and it's called Helpless. Apologies, black, 
Dave Grohl on drums with Mission Impossible. That was a split seven-inch single recorded in April 1985. The other band on the record was called Lunch Meat. But again, nothing much happened, even after they changed their name to Fast. So within a few months, when two members graduated from high school and moved off to college, Mission Impossible came to an end, and Dave formed a new group called Dane Bramage. They made their debut at a community center in December 1985. And that's what Dane Bramage sounded like. They released an LP called I Scream Not Coming Down on a California-based hardcore label called Fart Blossom Records, which was released on February 28, 1987. This is the song that leads off the record. It's called The Log. Dane Bramage featuring Dave Grohl on drums from 1986. This band lasted almost two years, but then Dave got a chance to do something else, and he jumped at it. That part of the dossier is next. This is the Dave Grohl Deep Background Dossier Part 1, and as you can tell, we're interested in some of the underreported parts of Dave's career. And we've just made it to the end of his band, Dane Bramage. And frankly, that band died because Dave bailed. He got an offer that he just couldn't refuse. While he was playing in all these other bands, he became a fan of a local DC hardcore group called Scream. They were legends around town. They had been around for about five years by the time Dave joined up, replacing their longtime drummer. Worked like this. One day in 1987, he was buying some drumsticks at a music store when he saw a notice on the bulletin board announcing that Scream was looking for a new drummer. He tore the note down, contacted the band, auditioned, and got what he thought was his dream gig by the end of that month. Most sources say that he dropped Dane Bramage in half a second, and that was the end of the band. There were some hard feelings, but member Dave Smith ended up working as a member of the Foo Fighters road crew for a time, so, you know, not all the bridges were burned. But back to Scream, Dave was just 17 at the time, which meant he was underage when it came to playing at bars, so he lied. He said he was 22. The other thing he did was drop out of school with his mom's blessing. Okay, right, school. This is dossier item number six. Dave was not a good student. It wasn't that he wasn't smart. It's just that he, he didn't care. When he was younger, he got straight A's. Now, at age 17, not so much. He was a part-time stoner, too, which didn't help. Even transferring to a couple of different schools didn't make any difference. He also wasn't happy working at a couple of part-time jobs at Shakey's Pizza and Tower Records. He wanted to make music for a living. And now he was a member of Scream, and they had a European tour coming up. So it was kind of like this. Um, Mom, I'm, I'm going to quit high school. I'm not going to graduate. That, as you might guess, did not go over well with the English teacher. But after a lot of dinner table discussions, she just kind of sighed and said, Okay, on two conditions. Number one, you pay rent for staying here in the house. And number two, you finish school by going to night school. Dave agreed, except for the night school part. He spent his tuition on pot. Anyway, this freedom up to tour with Scream, which is now a brand new dossier item, and we're up to number seven. He even got his buddy a job as a roadie, even though he was underage too. I'd never been past Chicago, and all of a sudden I joined Scream, 
and we tour America. And I think I was 18 or 17. We tour America, and it was just like, oh my God, I'd never been to California. Make my way out to California. It was just awesome. And it didn't matter that you didn't have any money. It didn't matter that nobody came to see you play. You know, you were just psyched to be on this crazy road trip. And then to Europe for the first time. And wow, I'm in Amsterdam and I'm 18 and I'm free, man. You know, that was cool. It was great. I mean, there was nothing that I couldn't stay in school. There was no reason for me to stay in school because I didn't want to be anywhere else but behind the drum set. I mean, of course, I wish now that I would have stayed in school just because the desire to learn is still there and to, just to learn anything, just more about everything. But, uh, but I just felt like I had to, this is the only thing that I really, really, really wanted to do. And getting into Scream and starting to tour the world was just like, was an incredible difference than just sort of, you know, practicing in your basement and then going to a bar downtown and then going back to the basement and going to another bar downtown and then, you know. The first Scream album to feature Dave Grohl was their fourth. It's called No More Censorship and was released in August 1988. So we should uh, probably take a listen, right? The lead-off track from No More Censorship, the fourth album by Washington, D.C.'s Scream, and the first to feature their new drummer, now 19-year-old Dave Grohl. That's called Hit Me. That album, by the way, was remixed by Dave and then reissued as part of a Record Store Day thing in 2017. Dave was with Scream for almost four years, and when it came time to record their fifth and final album, Dave got a chance to sing lead. Although he wasn't really crazy about his singing voice. You know, being a drummer... And feeling comfortable behind the drums, you're sitting down, you're in the back, you're kind of hidden, and you're playing probably the loudest instrument, the loudest acoustic instrument in the world. And uh, you, can, you can hide behind this huge wall of noise and this you know, massive set of tubs in front of you. Having to actually sing, I mean, there's you're totally vulnerable and you feel naked and you feel exposed and it's weird, you know, because there's nothing more intimate or revealing as, uh, as just your voice, you know? And I just always felt really weird about singing. Like I didn't mind, I don't mind singing backups, but when it's my voice out front, that's when it gets kind of creepy. Nevertheless, he did work up the courage to sing lead on a song that appeared halfway through the record. The album was called Fumble, and this is God's Look Down. Scream, God's Look Down, featuring Dave Grohl on vocals. That album, which again is called Fumble, was recorded in 1990, but didn't get released until 1993, almost three years after Dave joined Nirvana. As you can tell, there are a lot of things about Dave Grohl in this dossier that delves deep into his background, but now we're up to the time he joins Nirvana, which of course leads into the Foo Fighters, and we're, we're done, right? I mean, how much of that part of his career hasn't been documented? Why do you need me for this? <laughs> well, this is where I think you'll be surprised. You need to listen to part two.
This program is available as a podcast. Just go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio, and you'll find them. They're all free for the taking. If you need regular doses of music news, there's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. I update it all the time with stuff about music that I find interesting. Hopefully you will too. And there's a newsletter that goes along with it so you don't miss anything. If you want to connect on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, we can do that. And old-fashioned email is always good. Alan at alancross.ca. Part two of the ultra-deep background on Dave Grohl coming up next time. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 